Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Chris Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers. With your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the Catch of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. This information is also on our awesome website, LGGPodcast.com. Kirk, Season 3, Episode 3, we're going to talk about um, uh, something we're calling theory crafting, which is where we take sort of a proposed way that the law could be um, maybe inappropriately used or creatively used to do things that it was not meant to do and whether it would work. Um, And we kind of did one of these before. I think our second episode, Kirk, was the... Season 1, Episode 2, I believe. Yeah, the Time Traveler episode. That was a situation where somebody actually filed a patent application for a time travel device. So we got to kind of see how the government would deal with it. Um, but we also talked in that episode about what if a time traveler really did come back in time and try to patent something yep. that they brought back from the future. Yeah, and the, the problem we identified is they didn't invent it, so they wouldn't be able to patent or it. Or did they? Or and did that's they? Uh, the issue I think you bump into in conjunction with it is the, and just to briefly do the episode, it's the Star Trek Four problem in yes. conjunction with Transparent Aluminum where that is exactly what's played out in conjunction yep. with the movie. So we're going to talk about a related issue today uh, involving copyrights, not patents. And I, I particularly like uh, this, this uh, topic today uh, because it illustrates some, some subtle differences between how patents and copyrights work that I think people don't generally understand. And what we're going to talk about today is a situation, well, really two situations. And w- one of these was brought to my attention by, I think, our, our, our favorite listener, Ed from Grand Rapids, yep. uh, who mentioned um, a programmer who was trying to monopolize all of music forever by uh, writing a program which would in turn generate every possible song you could write in the Western, um, uh, Western <laughs> musical style. Yep. Uh, and then nobody else could ever write uh, any songs because no matter what they picked, he's already done it and he was there first, so he wins. Yep. And then a similar case we just read about um, in response to uh, the Katy Perry lawsuit, which Kirk will talk about in just a second, yep. where a lawyer and a, a programmer, both uh, big music fans and musicians, decided that Katy Perry uh, got a raw deal and that they wanted to make sure it never happens again by doing the same thing as the first guy, except instead of preventing all music from ever being written, they were going to commit it all to the public domain so nothing could ever be copyrighted again. Yep. So just to give you the background of it, this is from a February 26th article in the Atlantic Monthly and that we encountered as part of our sort of you know standard IP research that's out there. And two individuals, uh, it's Damien Real and Noah Rubin, sorry if I mispronounced those names, are both musicians. Uh, one's a lawyer and one is a coder and what they decided is to basically go through and have a computer generate all sorts of patterns um, essentially it doesn't seem necessarily how long the patterns are but going through and generating all patterns as to what it would be um, from the uh, the 12 notes so I believe oh it actually says in here that they're actually 12 notes um, so it doesn't yeah, actually say 12 that notes in the western uh, yeah but they actually said they're generating all patterns of 12 notes because it's okay. uh, therefore it is 12 notes um, so what the issue with it was is the underlying suit of this is that Katy Perry uh, lost a multi-million dollar pa- uh, copyright suit over the song Dark Horse um, and found the jury found that she'd infringed upon the copyright of an artist named Flame who is a Christian rapper who posted a song with the same melody to YouTube. The issue with mm. it is, is that Perry had assisted that she had never heard the song of the rapper. Um, 
but it was still found essentially to be a copyright infringement. And we're going to go into the reasons why you could find a copyright infringement in that case. But first, let's give just a little bit of background. We've talked before about what is copyright and, and sort of what are the elements of copyright. Copyright is a right in copies. So therefore, it's a right to prohibit somebody from making copies. Um, what we get into in conjunction with this particular case is how is that right interpreted by the courts? Because obviously, you know, you know, Katy Perry asserting she had never heard the work, how could she Logically, copy how it? How could she copy it? Yeah. Um, you know, when we look at it and say, hey, if I've got a book out there, you know, how do I, I prove copyright uh, infringement? If I've got a book and I've taken it to a photocopier and I've generated copies of it and I now have those copies, I have clearly made a copy of the book. And that's what we call direct copying, where yeah. it's just you've, you've clearly made a direct copy of the work, like music infringement online, just direct copy. Yeah, so, you know, those kind of things within, hey, I've taken software and copied it from disk to disk. You know, I've taken a CD and I've made a physical CD copy of it, you know, or, a, you know, a tape of it. Those things would seem to imply, you know, hey, here's direct copying. I have clearly made a copy from the original um, is what we have. Now, what you really get into in conjunction with copyright is it's very hard to prove direct infringement in certain cases. So, again, we're not talking about something here where it's, they took Katy Perry's CD or Katy Perry took Flames CD. And Fred doesn't even have a CD. He just has it up on YouTube. Who has CDs anymore? Um, and, you know, physically made another digital copy of it, you know, that's, that's detectable. The issue here is essentially that you're influenced by it and that you copied it. The issue you get into and, and the way the copyright law has dealt with direct, the lack of direct infringement is a recognition that it's relatively easy for a potential infringer to avoid infringement by essentially just hiding the ball. And we've talked about this before about how in, in our view the strength of a copyright and whether you've infringed it versus made a fair use of it versus uh, just been inspired by it is sort of a sliding scale, right? It's sort of a spectrum. You've got direct copies, which are just infringing, and then you've got you know, homage, where I'm sort of um, um, paying my respects to a prior work uh, in a way that is not really copying anything that could be considered an infringement. And somewhere in between, you've got, I've done enough that I should be allowed to do it, but not so much that it's a really a wholly original work. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem we sort of get into is, you know, what does it take to be a copy? Um, and that's the, the kind it's of thing we get It's a harder question than it sounds like. Yeah, it's definitely a harder question than it sounds like. And the, what we have here is the court sort of recognizing that it's hard to know whether or not somebody actually made a copy um, of whatever the work might be. Because, again, they can hide the ball. We have evidence problems. We have just problems of determining what exactly can it be. Um, but artistic processes in particular are not are not really well documented. It's yeah. not like a patent where you'll have a lab journal and some inventor's notes. You know, you and I both have played music. When you go to write a song, you just kind of sit down and write a song. Yeah, you just come up with chords and, hey, you hear something. Yeah, I mean, you I did compositions. Usually. I mean, how often do you sit down and say, well, I'm going to write a song that sounds just like this? You're just <laughs> inspired by things you've heard and you like. Yeah. and. Uh, like I'm trying to learn how to play Blackbird right now on my guitar, and I was listening to a video of Paul McCartney explaining where that came from, and he just took like a piece of classical music and just modified it. Now that's yeah. public domain, so there's no copyright infringement there. But yep. you know, but th that's how a lot of this stuff works. Is you're sort of inspired by things that you've heard, and you may not even consciously realize it. Yeah, I mean, one of these was used as an example of inspiration. I think it was a good one. We were at the Country Music Hall of Fame. We ended up seeing at a songwriters conference, which was fascinating. Um, but a bunch of presentations by songwriters, and one of them had written the Reba McIntyre song that world won't stop for your for my broken heart um, and commented that the inspiration for that song had actually been an episode of charlie brown um, because mm -hmm. that's a comment that's made to charlie brown of the fact that you know hey the world doesn't stop because of this this thing being bad uh, just for you and so it's it's one of these things where 
you know, it's hard to know where inspiration comes from. So what you've got in conjunction with copyright infringement is because it's easy for a musician to hide the ball, because it's easy to say, hey, there's no direct copying, can we figure out there's a copy? And the example I oftentimes use when I do presentations on this is I said, it's not a copyright infringement if I sit down in my garage and I write word for word the entirety of Gone with the Wind. I did not commit copyright infringement because I made no copy. It's entirely generated on my own. The issue with it is, is when one looks at it and says, what is the odds of me generating the entire text, word for word, of Gone with the Wind? Um, independently? From, independently. <laughs> one would say they, they, they're incalculably small. small yeah. And so it's more than likely that I copied it, but how do you prove that I copied it? You can't prove that I copy it. So they've created a new scheme and it requires a two-part test. And the two parts of that test is what they call substantial similarity and access. So we're saying that the, the, the work that's accused of copying has to bear a substantial similarity to the allegedly infringed work. Yep. And that the person who made the allegedly infringing work uh, had access to the original and they're so close that it... it, it it defies uh, reason and, yep. and, and indulgence or presumption to say that they did not copy. Yeah, and, and again, the real key is substantial similarity if we look at it and say, you know, what is the likelihood that I could generate the entirety of Gone with the Wind on my own? Yeah, it's zero, infinitesimally yeah. small. I mean, that's the, the sort of pattern that you bump but into. But does it. that hold true with music? Well, and the question with it is, and what you really get into in conjunction with this, is where has music gone in conjunction with copyright? And we talked about it is you know, beforehand and on the prior version of this podcast as well. This <laughs> this version recorded version the two. <laughs> Um, the fact that originally copyright was not covering music. Um, it originally really wasn't directed to music because music was seen as ephemeral. It covered a copyright in the written score of music, mm -hmm. but there was no methodology for recording. So the technology that you guys are all listening to on us right now, even the primitive, most primitive versions of it didn't exist. There was no way to understand what music would be as a sound because there was no way to record it. There was no the way to generate it. Performance rights as opposed yeah. to actual rights in a recording of a performance. In a recording. Now, once we actually had recorded music, and actually originally it was done in conjunction with piano rolls and player pianos, which is why to this day recording rights are referred to as mechanical licenses. Mm -hmm. um, it's a mechanical performance. A mechanical performance, yep. Yeah. Um, what you would essentially bump into is there was no there was no copyright in this. Well, we now said, hey, there is a copyright in the actual recording sounds as to what it is, not just in the score. Um, that we law had. is still changing, we should say. They just passed a federal law to make all pre- 1972 sound recording subject to the Copyright Act. They yep. weren't until last year or two years ago. Yep. And so, you know, there's a lot sort of, you know, playing around and, and changing in conjunction with this area. Well, what we've had happen is the question of how much does there need to be copying in music to be infringement? Now, if one looked at it and said, hey, I was to sit down and write the entirety of somebody else's song, lyrics and all, um, you know, in my garage without having ever heard it, it's yeah, right. highly unlikely. Yeah. You know, we, we look at that again. The problem that I think we bump into is that copyright law has been requiring shorter and shorter pieces of music to be infringed for there to be infringement well, found. Shorter and shorter pieces are eligible for copyright protection, protection. and therefore it's easier for, for longer pieces to contain some part of it and therefore infringe. Yep, and so what you, you're seeing, and it's come down to effectively now, it, it's effectively three notes. Which, if you look at it, is about as minimum as it can be. It really can't be two notes. Well, if um, you think about it, I mean, so we've got 12 notes in the Western musical canon. Yep. Uh, in any given key signature that you're in, you've really only got seven. Yep. And I mentioned on our last one, uh, I'm working on learning guitar, and under the pentatonic scale, you've only got five. Yep. So now we're talking about, I can play three out of five notes and get a copyright to it? 
Yeah, and I think that that's the, the thing that you bump into is it's, hey, you know, can you get a copyright to playing three out of five notes? More importantly, if you write an entire song, can somebody infringe it by copying merely three out of five notes? And the issue what we're getting into is this determination of substantial similarity. What you have to keep in mind is if we say the copyright of three, uh, you know, or three notes is entitled to a copyright, if I have those same three notes, I'm not only substantially similar to it, I'm identical, identical. to it. Well, and particularly the odds are high when you've got uh, genres like, I think popular music especially is prone to this, there is a limited range of what you can produce and still really fit within the yeah. genre. We talked about blues is like that, bluegrass is like that, uh, con country music is like yeah, that. The old, the old popular phrase, country music is nothing other than three chords in the truth. Three chords. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so we're talking three chords. I mean, well, we, I think, I don't know if I showed you this or not, but there was a video I, I watched called the from a, a group called the Axis of Awesome. <laughs> you did and show me this. They, they, they basically play, you know, 40 or 50 different songs using the exact same four chords and different, uh, basically C and A minor. Yep. Uh, and then a couple of, uh, of, of related chords. Um, and even in guitar, there's an acronym. Uh, I think it's CAGE, C-A-G-E. If you can play those four chords, yeah. you can play almost <laughs> everything. So, you know, there's a limited range of what you can play within these genres, which means the music is, is kind of by design supposed to sound alike. Yeah, the music, the songs do sound alike. And there's a lot of jokes in conjunction. You'll find them on YouTube. You can find them sort of around the things. Like, look at the country music one that played yeah. six country songs at the same time. You couldn't tell the difference. That there was, yeah, there, they play them on top of each other. They, they switch between solos freely. Stuff like that. And I do say that. I think that one's slightly off because I believe two or three of those songs are actually um, the, the same, same artist, artist. Yeah, yeah. yeah the same writer not the same artist performing them but the um but yeah, a lot of what you, I think you bump into in conjunction with this is that we have this recognition in music that music is very similar and it's relatively simple and we now have the copyright law looking at it and saying, hey, but yet these very short phrases, these very simple phrases can potentially be subject to copyright mm -hmm. um, and potential to infringement. So now what you bump into is we say we look at that two-part test and we say, hey, it's substantially similar. We have met the first part of the test. The second part of the test is access. Well, the person have access to it. What do now, you not I, have access to? These yeah, things? and that's the issue. Access Access does not require me to actually have a copy of it because then you could prove that I copied it, presumably. Access is accepted, the fact that it's simply something which is published, that is available to the public, and therefore I have access to it. So, for example, with the Gone with the Wind scenario, they simply need to show that Gone with the Wind can be purchased at any bookstore, and therefore I have yeah, access the to it. The likelihood that you could have seen it at some point is yeah, pretty high. Or I could get it from a library. We're sitting in a library currently. I suspect this library has a copy with Gone with the Wind in it. And, and the fact that you can testify, well, I don't remember ever reading that, and I'm confident that I haven't, uh, is, you know, it, it matters, but it's not decisive. And I haven't sent him to a lie. I haven't sent him to lie. Uh, you haven't sent him to lie, or you could have just forgotten. Particularly, yep. you know, gone with the wind. You'd know if you read it or not. But you know, there's a. <laughs> it's long enough. Yeah, there's a. There's another famous case involving George Harrison from the Beatles, where he wrote a song called "My Sweet Lord" that was accused of infringing a song by I forget who, uh, the Chanel's maybe. I don't remember. Um, but he was accused of infringement, and I believe he also said under oath, like, I don't remember that song. I, I know what it is, I guess. But he didn't remember when he first heard it. There's no evidence he'd ever yep. heard the song. But it was so close. And, and and the judge basically said, you know what, this can happen by accident. We're not saying it was malicious, but you heard the song at some point and you incorporated the melody into your new song that's still an infringement. Yep. And that's the thing is that copyright does not require an intent when it comes to this sort of piece of it. Yeah. It requires the intent to copy, but they kind of dodge the intent when it says substantial similarity and access. Because of evidentiary problems. Because of evidentiary problems. So they tend to come back and say, okay, yes, it can be subconscious. It could, you know, we can't prove it, we can't disprove it, so we, we allow it to be. So what we're really in a scenario with right now in, in copyright is particularly in music is 
you know, we now have three note patterns where you can assert that any three note pattern which you have access to um, is potentially a copyright infringement. And I think that's what we bump into is what is not on YouTube right now that has, you know, what three note combinations are not on YouTube somewhere. Um, now, you know, more likely these infringements are longer periods of this. Yeah, They're not usually. just three notes. Well, turning back to our, our, our case examples, we've got the guy who wants to own all music forever by having a computer generated. Yep. I don't think we even need to get to the point of did you copy his stuff? Because I think his, his claim is going to die at the threshold question of authorship. Is he the author of the musical notes that result from his program? And yep. I don't think that's a... that's. To me, the answer is clearly no, and I yeah. think the court would waste a little time with that. But let's talk about what it takes to be an author of a copyrighted book. Yeah, so I think a little bit of where this is also pulling from is in, there's been a case recently in patent law in the European patent community, EPC, um, where it's been asserted that an, uh, essentially an AI, a neural net, um, is the inventor for the purposes of a patent of a particular piece of software. Um, and the EPC has come back and said, no, they're not. Um, and, and, and machine cannot be an inventor, and therefore the underlying inventor is the humans who originally programmed the machine, which then developed this. Um, so we can kind of look at it and say, okay, you know, yes, the person can say, even though my machine came up with this, um, as the original programmer of the machine, I'm entitled to the, the copyrights. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. but it does, I think that the, the, they haven't really done that. And the best case, I think, to jump to with this is, you guys may remember this from a year or two ago, the monkey selfie case. Yeah, that's a good example. So that was a case where a photographer set a camera up in a jungle or something, and a chimpanzee, I think it was, maybe? Yeah, we were um, trying to remember earlier what's exactly kind of, you know, monkey or ape Was it ape a really a monkey was. or was it an ape? Monkey is funnier, so we'll go with monkey. Yeah. Um, but uh, a monkey came by and, and you know, stuck his face in the camera and took a picture, and it became known as the famous monkey selfie. And uh, people tried to use it, and the, uh, the, the, the photographer asserted a copyright over it, and the court said, well, no, you, you maybe set the camera out, but you didn't actually push the button. You didn't take the you picture. You didn't take the picture. You didn't pose the monkey. You didn't do have anything to do with it other than setting up the circumstances circumstances under which the picture could be taken that's not enough to make you the author of the photograph that resulted yeah there's sort of some some random elements that come into here and yeah i think that that's the you know so there's an argument i think to say that this person's not the author because while they may have set up the computer to generate this it, they didn't come up with the actual combinations. I think there's a second problem here, and, and I think the reason for it is is that these are not doing it where they're generating random numbers of notes either. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, these are generating mathematical patterns of notes, usually in accordance to a very strict order. Yeah. So I think what we bump into is the question coming out of somebody is, hey, is there sufficient modicum of originality in this, which there is a requirement that there be a sufficient modicum of originality to get a copyright. Yep. Um, and courts and have ruled on this type of question, not in this exact circumstance, yep. but when it comes to just selecting and ordering of things, like you know, alphabetizing a list, I don't get a copyright to that. You know, yep. so by by writing a program that just generates a sequence of tones in an ordained order, that, that's probably not going to be copyrightable. But likewise, having the computer randomly generate it, well, then the computer's selecting and arranging based on randomness. That I've got nothing to do with. Yeah, and I think it's particularly interesting. I, I, is the when you know my association with this. So when I was actually took computer programming in college, one of my Final papers and your final projects in terms of my classes, I actually generated a computer program which went through and would take any uh, a Word document and and turn it into a piece of music. And what it did is it converted the text of the Word document into ASCII symbols, um, went through mm -hmm. you know eliminated certain ones, and then converted them. I believe it was I think I had a three octave scale, so I had 36 different notes that it could pick. Um, and what it would do is it would then assign this. So it would, it would normalize them so they were all within 36 numbers. I did some other things to say, like, hey, it couldn't jump too many octaves, stuff like that. And then it assigned that the first note was the first, um, 
number associated with it was the note statement, and the second mm-hmm. one was the length statement. And it would take any document and convert it to a musical uh, piece of music. Yeah. And so I did this, and I actually ran through the uh, my, bunch of my term papers and you know things like that when I was in college uh, to demonstrate what it was. And then in sort of the the great self-referential uh, period, I took its own code, <laughs> converted that from Word into the appropriate document, and then played it play its own code uh, as a piece of music, which worked out surprisingly well, actually. Yeah. You have a derivative work <laughs> argument as well. It's, uh, that's, that's a true derivative work. Like it's a re- <laughs> transformational <laughs> recasting of the original. The exact same work. Uh, and so you know, the thing that's interesting about it, though, is we look at it and say, you know, is I entitled to a copyright in this? Well, I'm clearly entitled to a copyright in the to program the code, I wrote. Yeah. I was entitled to a copyright in the term paper I wrote. Arguably, that, that it was converting. Arguably, the resultant musical work was a derivative work of those two things. So maybe I'm entitled to a copyright from that respect of it being a derivative work and me being the author of it. This but, really raises higher questions, too. Like, like modern art is really moving towards this, like, circumstantial art, and there's a lot of things that I look at, and I'm like, well, that's not really art, but that's just me being a get-off-my-lawn guy. Yeah, know? and performance arts, you know, where yeah. you're talking about things that can now not recorded. They're live performances. Yeah, and, and then you get into the question of, at what point is there too much randomness outside of the artist's control to where the artist, the, the, the you know, the, the nominal artist is not actually the author of the resulting work? Yeah, and you get into things, I, I know, uh, one of the famous ones, the, the piece of work, which is simply the audience noise. I can't remember. Yes. It's, a ti- it's a time. I don't remember how long the time is. Did that? Yeah, you know, and that's where you bump into the question, who is the author of that work? I think there even was a little bit of copyright dispute over who is the author of that work. I would not be surprised. Um, and uh, and things, but the the thing that you really get into, I think, in conjunction with all of this, is when we're talking about the idea of somebody generating a computer program and then claiming, "Hey, I own the copyright in all forms of music because my computer program generated these certain note patterns yeah, of certain lengths." It, it just seems like uh, there's too many ways to say they're not entitled to the copyright, which I think most copyright attorneys would say are reasonable. Mm-hmm. That a court looking at this and saying, "Hey, we know what we're trying to do." We're not going to let you do it because yeah. there's plenty of reason that we can say you can't. And if, if all that fails, there's still a doctrine of copyright misuse where you can't you can't use copyright for purposes like this. There's yeah. also antitrust law. There's all, there's all kinds of tools out there that yeah. you know. Remember, the copyright is an exception to antitrust law, but yeah, you could essentially have trust this thing. But there, there, you you still can run into problems if if you're if you're not careful with yeah. how you deploy your copyrights. You need but, the tying yeah. and things like that. So that's our first case. But I think the, we can turn to the second the one, which is the one, idea yeah. now of saying, hey, we're not going to do this to to own the copyright and own everything. We're going to come in and we're going to simply give it to the public domain. So, Kirk, is that going to work? I also don't think that one's going to work. Yeah, me either. And the reason I don't think it's going to work, I think, you know, first off is going to be a question of it's hard to dedicate to the public domain something you don't own a copyright to. Yeah, so same problem. If I'm not the author, I can't public domain it. But then the, then the argument is if it has no author, isn't it de facto public, public domain? Public domain. And now you bump into the question of, well, if it has no author, is not anything that the computer could generate public domain. Yeah. Um, and, the, and now we bump into all this music copyrightable. <laughs> and, you know, those type of things sort of, of, of a, you know, sort of logical conclusions so to speak, or the you know uh, to use the um, the uh, the legal term, the slippery slope argument. Yes. Um, but what we uh, what I think we really get into in conjunction with this thing is is there really anything copyrightable in this? And my understanding from it is again, it's a twelve note pattern, um, and it's generating literally every possibility of it's twelve the exact note pattern. Same situation, just a different intention. I think I think there's a good chance the court would say no, but. Let's just assume for sake of argument, and because it's more interesting, that the court did tell this guy, uh, yeah, fine, you own all these copyrights, you can put them on the public domain. Does that mean that nobody else can ever own a copyright to a song that they write? Yeah, and this is the answer is no. No, And it's because the people can generate their own copyrights. 
the real thing I think they're looking for is is a defense. But on the grounds that you know, can somebody stolen a copyright? The answer is yes, because again, we're talking about what it is. So if we could definitively prove that a person never had access to this, you know, particular, yeah. um, you know, piece of work, um, which is generated, they could say, "Hey, I'm entitled to my own copyright, even though I generated the exact work. Well, I literally generated the exact this, work." How would this play out, right? So these guys are going to put this what this this. 40, 100 hour long recording of all these tones and sequences <laughs> on YouTube and say, oh, look, it's out there. I mean, the court's going to look at that and say nobody has ever sat down and yep. listened to all of that because everybody knows exactly what it is. Yep. This is clearly a highly technical attempt to work around, you know, uh, this is a typical programmer approach. And I, I say this as, as, <laughs> as a programmer who is uh, guilty of this also from my programmer days of, of looking at the law as, as a, a computer machine, but it's not. You know, there is an element of human judgment in it. And I think if you were to raise this example, up and say, well, look, judge, you can't prove that I copied, you know, what, uh, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, flame because the same sequence is in this other thing. Uh, the judge is going to say that's that's nuts. The fact that this guy made this this long thing, n nobody would rationally yeah. sit down and listen to that. Uh, it's it's much more likely that you heard the other one. So I don't think it really changes anything. Well, and I think the real issue you've got in conjunction with this is the argument here is effectively saying, since this is public domain, I can now argue that I have equal access to this public domain piece that I have to the non-public domain piece, to yeah. the, work, the work on YouTube, whatever it is. But that doesn't mean equal probability. I mean, yep. access is a proxy for the probability that you copied. Yep. And what I think you really also get into is you then also bump into the dual problem of, well, if a court did actually find that, you know, yes, this is a defense because it's just as likely that you had access to this, it now becomes hard for you to say you have copy you know, copyright in it because did you actually develop something which leads to the level of a derivative work mm -hmm. or not? Um, and so now you bump into, hey, do they own the copyrights or all copyrights public domains for every bit of music generated, which the music industry is going to be opposed to, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so you, you now bump into a sort of this, if it succeeds at its primary purpose, it's going to cause a secondary problem that the people who want it to succeed at its primary purpose don't want. Exactly. So, so I think it has to fail for both of these guys. Or, I mean, if, if it works for one, then it works for the other, and then it's just a yeah. matter of who, who gets their stuff on YouTube first. Yeah, and so you know what's on YouTube and things like that. And what what it really seems here, and it's I commented about this beforehand, and, and this is one of these things where you know, speaking as somebody who's primarily a patent attorney, this is one of those things where I look at it and I say, this is quite frankly the copyright attorneys and the copyright holders being forced to sleep in the bed they made to some extent. Yeah. To some extent, this is a thing where if you would have told me 20 years ago there's problems coming in copyright because of the fact that they're they're getting shorter and shorter, the substantial similarity and access is becoming easier to do, even before the internet, I would have looked at it and said, this is going to present a problem. The internet has made it that you have access to everything. I mean, when you talk about things being available for access on YouTube, one of my favorite statistics I remember hearing at one point in time is that on YouTube, there is the amount of video uploaded to YouTube every seven minutes, which is the equivalent to every, the amount of, of video which has been shown on broadcast TV since broadcast TV started. Wow. Um, so, I mean, usually the idea of just the, the sheer quantity. volume of material yeah. going up on YouTube. Um, and I remember there was as well, I believe it's Spotify, I think it was Spotify or Pandora, one of the streaming services. There was a separate service you could actually get that would use either Spotify or Pandora or one of the streaming services, and it would play only songs which had yeah, never been played on that streaming service. And the ones that have been played, it never shows up on yeah, there as soon as, it, as soon as you listen to it, it's removed from anybody else ever listening to it on that particular playlist. And so you look at it and say there's enormous amounts of content which is available to which you have access, but which you could actually definitively prove nobody has ever accessed. 
I think music is, is unique amongst all the things that we copyright because of the nature of what a performance is. I think it's even more difficult and more unique than like audio, like audio visual works like yeah. a movie or, or a choreographic work. You know, because the music, you know, what is the musical work? It's not the sheet music. That's a literary work that yep. contains a representative of the song. It's not the recording. That's a recording of a performance of the song. Yep. The musical work, and, and the term musical work is not defined in the Copyright Act, but it is the sequence or an arrangement of tones and pauses that make up the melody. But that, that thing lives in the abstract in a way that, like, a movie does not. The movie has a script. We have the words and the yeah. character names written down. But the music is, is really mathematical, as you said. It's, it's a sequence of frequencies and durations and time. It's a really, really abstract idea. And we have a legal system designed around it that sort of grew up in response to the technologies that, that made this industry possible. And I, th I think they've been, they've been struggling with this ba basic problem from, from jump. I mean, from the minute the player piano showed up... Yeah. We've been legislating about every 20 to 30 years to try to update the Copyright Act. And if you ever read it, the amount of the Copyright Act that is dedicated to the music <laughs> industry, I, what, what would you say conservatively? A third of it? Is Probably a third of it, yeah. I mean, but yes, it is. It's all it is. these terms and compulsory, I mean, much more than TV gets. Yeah, and, and I think the real thing behind it is because we have so difficult, such a difficult time defining what is music. I think there's clear recognition that music should be subject to copyright, but what really is music? And I think that's what we bump into. That's well, the problems that, we have. And, and the nature, too, of how music is written, how much of it is inspired by and developed by and, yeah. and influenced by is is uh, more more in the DNA of, of the medium than it is in virtually anything else. Yeah. I can write a book that is a fantasy epic inspired by Lord of the Rings and I can generate a thousand completely original novels based on that. People have. People have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a thousand people have. I mean, yeah. let's say, let's be real. Let's say here. And similarly, I can generate something listening to a piece of music. I can probably generate a thousand pieces of music generated by it. I can generate pieces of music inspired by works of literature and vice versa. Mm -hmm. You know, so but what we really see here, and again, where I think the problem of this lies, is we have gotten to the idea that infringement of music is so short. Yes. Music, musical works, by their nature, tend to be brief, at least modern music. Yeah. They're getting shorter and shorter. I mean, it used to be a song, you know, a CD had 10 or 11 songs, and they were six or seven minutes long. Yep. You know, and then now now I get I get songs that are that are less than two minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's always the discussion of your songs are supposed to be three minutes long. You know, it's and, a sort and, of running yeah, and joke. And of the three minutes, there's about 20 seconds of original <laughs> composition. Yeah. The rest is just repeated. Yeah, and that's, you know, when you think about it, is it's, if you take a song that's three minutes and you give it, you know, two verses, three choruses, and a bridge, yeah. and, you know, I've only got six pieces there's of music. Six late sections of music in there, and um, you know, and there's really only three original ones, or four original ones. Um. Our, our time's up here, so we're going to move on. We're trying to do more uh, shorter episodes to get more con content out to you, and my my 30 minute timer is going off, so we're going to wrap this one up. I think next time, Kirk, we're going to look at maybe uh, doing a, a, a throwback to our very first episode and talk about uh, uh, protection of universe, uh, and that's yeah. sort of coming up. Not a very first episode. The very first episode was trade dress. Uh, yeah, one of our early episodes, which is, yeah, it was, is sort of, and it's my personal fascination with the idea of copyright associated with universe. And what does it mean when I say it's not a, a work, it's a universe? We're talking about things like the Potterverse, um, yeah. you know, the Star Wars the, the universe, universe, the, Jurassic the, Park the Park world. world. Um, any of these things where we sort of look at it and say these things are clearly all connected, they're all in one thing, shared but setting, they're the shared setting, yeah. but they're incomplete. It's it's a setting, it's a location, it's a sort of rules of operation, um, but it's not the specific 
incorporation yeah. of what happens in any one story. Yeah, so we'll get into what IP there is in that and what there's not and, and, uh, and, and more more detail. So check out our website, lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. That reminds me, we have emails. Uh, those of you who have been emailing us for the last uh, 18 months, I had set up a rule to forward the emails to me and Kirk, and my rule did not work. Something so, went wrong. Those of you who have been emailing us, we have now gotten them all, and we will start going through them in a future episode. We're very sorry. We are very sorry. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms. Give us a review to help new listeners find us. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 